0: Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we have set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting.
1: And my name is Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA. I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship.
0: Thanks, Alex. Today is our second installment of our Physician Writer Series with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, who previously spent 22 years at the Times, and the author of An American Sickness, a New York Times bestseller, and an eye-opening investigation into America's healthcare system. Former ER physician, Dr. Rosenthal is an award-winning reporter, correspondent, and patient advocate. She's had an immense impact on American healthcare policy and public discourse, and Washingtonian Magazine recently named her one of the most influential people in D.C. right now.
2: Thank you so much for joining
0: us, Elizabeth.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Elizabeth,
0: for those in the audience who may not know your full story, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your early years, and why you decided to pursue a career in medicine?
2: Sure. <laughs> it's been a long road to where I am today. You know, I come from a family of doctors. Uh, my dad was a hematologist in New York City. And um, most of my female cousins are physicians. The men somehow went other directions. And um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I did like medicine. Uh, and I also always loved writing, but I didn't think writing was a practical career. So my vision was. Kind of like I would be a physician and enjoy that and write on the side. And then kind of life happened. You know, I was working, um, I trained in internal medicine in uh, New York City, and I was working in an emergency room, which was great for having doing a lot of freelance writing on the side because I was working three shifts a week, which was full time, Mm -hmm. and I had two days to myself to write. So I was writing a lot for a whole bunch of places. It's what I always tell doctors who want to write, just write for everywhere and anywhere. Ended up writing a column frequently for the New York Times uh, magazine called Body and Mind, and also for Discover Magazine. And then at some point there was this thing called the Clinton Health Reform Plan, Uh, and now I sound like a dinosaur, but um, the Times said, well, do you want to come on board more seriously and and cover that and so that was happening i'd been working in a new york city emergency room at that point for 5 years it was a level 1 trauma center and in the middle of the hiv aids epidemic so it was kind of a you know difficult time and then two things happened i had my second kid so those those night shifts were getting kind of old and uh it was 1990 War, I think. And all the hospitals in New York suddenly said you had to be ER boarded to work in an emergency room. So I would have had to go back and get my ER boards or grandfather in. And kind of, I thought, okay, I'll go and cover the Affordable Care Act. I mean, sorry, there I go. <laughs> I'll cover the Clinton health reform and do some, some science writing at the Times. And that'll pass. And then I'll go back to being a doctor. So, of course, um, you know, that didn't pass and I got kind of drawn into the world of journalism. And um, I always thought I would come back, but never quite did. You know, it's kind of life leads you astray. I really enjoyed being an ER physician, but partly for the same reason I enjoy being a journalist that, you know, you get to talk to people and in all walks of life, you get to um you know, interact with them at at what are really seminal moments in their existence, and it, there's a lot of problem solving which there is in journalism. And I and you know when people say, you know when I when I talk to my young reporters now and and about how to interview people, I always tell them what I learned about interviewing people was in the emergency room, and I you know from the emergency room, I learned. Like I can walk into a room and not be afraid of anyone. And I don't care if they're like, you know, the the president of China or, you know, a, a serial killer. I, I'm fine going in and asking them personal questions. So mm-hmm. it made me a much more, um, I, I mean, I'm basically a very curious person. So it, mm-hmm. it, it uh, made me a better interviewer. And it also taught me, importantly, in an emergency room, that you have to keep an open mind when you're interviewing. You don't want to lead your subjects, which is a, a mistake that many younger physicians and younger journalists, they think they know what's going to be said and they're waiting to hear what they think the story is. And the trick in both cases is to listen. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of parallels in a weird way between those two sets of skills that make you a good ER doc and a good journalist. So.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. There's so much there. And I just wanted to hit on a couple of the things that that you mentioned. The parallels and the transferable skills between medicine and non-clinical careers is something that we've been hearing over and over again. And it's something that we want to highlight to our audience. And it's probably you know, it never, it's never quite as direct as sort of interviewing people in the ED and then interviewing people as a journalist. I mean, the transferable skills there sort of write themselves, but I'm really glad you mentioned that. I think the second thing that you mentioned was you just sort of started writing. You always were interested in it, but you started writing and you you started submitting your articles wherever you could. And, and I think a lot of people, when they reach out to me, because I do a little bit of writing as well, they always are curious how one can get started. And I don't think there's one identifiable way, like no, at this stage in my career and and my colleagues careers, no one's really reaching out to us and asking us to to write on a particular topic. It's it's just, you write something that you're interested in uh, that you notice in the world, and then you put it out there and someone picks it up eventually. And I tell people the hardest part is sort of writing that first one or two articles. But then when you sort of get in, you start to know people relatively easily. And so I think that helps.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and there are many more venues for getting your stuff out in the world now right. than there were in the uh, the 1990s. I actually started in late 1980s writing. And, um, you know, I think... A lot of people say will say to me, "Well, how can I get this in the New York Times or the Washington Post?" And I'm like, "It doesn't matter where it is, you know. Mm. I want to see. As a journalist, you you want to see clips. And uh, you know, uh, my actual start was before um, medical school. I I was on a fellowship in England and did just a little dumb stringing for UPI, United Press mm. International. So I had a few clips from that. Um, went to God. This was pro- I was probably their nightmare student went to <laughs> medical school for a year, went into the dean's office and said, I, I think I want to leave the first year of medical school. I did not enjoy it all. I was not a, you know, there were no people. It was all like dumb classes and dissections. And they gave me a leave of absence and I went to work for what was probably the worst science magazine in the world. It was a Hearst magazine called Science Digest, which probably doesn't even exist anymore. Our cover lines were like sex in space and it was about like amoebas being sent into space or something like that. But I spent a year, Harvard gave me a leave of absence and I spent a year just writing And, um, you know, at the end of that, I realized, uh, I'm not sure if this is what I want for a career, but I, I got a lot of skills, a lot of bylines. I mean, the trick of writing is like, I'm also a runner. So it's like running the trick of running. The trick of writing is just doing it. And the more you do it, the better you get. And, uh, and that's the secret sauce. I mean, some obviously will end up better than others, but it is. (laughs) about using that muscle. And so writers will frequently say, like physicians, you know, I haven't done it in a while. And so it's really hard to get back in. And the main reason I stopped totally being an ER doctor was as I was doing more writing, I realized, you know, working, because I was still picking up shifts once a week in an emer- in the emergency room. And I was like, I wouldn't want me as my my doctor anymore because I'm not doing it enough. So um, that was kind of part of my transition too. But so I went back to medical school after that year off and just kept writing and writing. You know, I wrote for Science Digest. I had a, a, a column in Discover Magazine every couple of months. And actually in my class of medical school, there were a whole bunch of writers. I think there are a lot of physicians who like to write because... You're so um, in touch as, as a physician with the human experience and right. what it means and all of the social problems that um, there's a lot of material there. You know, people would sometimes say, gosh, how are you writing these columns when you're in a resident? And I was like, it's a great way to get the bees out of my bonnet to, to process what I'm seeing. And I really tell medical students, start writing. You know, you have stories mm-hmm. So I think it's a really unique vantage point. You know, in my class were, was Perry Class, who writes for the New York Times, occasionally on pediatrics, but she did stay practicing as a pediatrician. Uh, Zeke Emanuel, who needs no introduction, you know, who does a lot of writing as a more of a health policy person. And Ethan Kanan, who you uh, who's who left and became a novelist, a, a successful novelist. And then at some point decided he wanted to finish his medical degree and came back. So, you know, I think there's just so much intersection between writing and medicine.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing that and sharing those names for our audience. I get the sense that, and you mentioned the curiosity a little bit earlier, but I get the sense that when you're driven to do something, you sort of go ahead and actually do it. I, I think it's challenging for a lot of people because- for whatever, you know, life reasons, or they want to, medicine offers them, or clinical medicine rather offers them a certain level of stability. So I'm curious, when you, and nowadays, a lot of people venture off the traditional path, but maybe in the 80s, 90s, there were fewer people. What level of support did you get from your clinical mentors or your family members when you said, hey, I'm not going to mm-hmm. do this anymore?
2: Not a lot. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Harvard thought I was crazy to leave, but um, my mom, who was the wife of a physician, you know, at a time, would would um, say like when I tried to get a res- restaurant reservation and couldn't get one, when I was a New York Times reporter would still say, tell them you're a doctor. <laughs> okay, I don't think that quite works anymore. But um, no, not a lot of support, but um, I, you know, I found that people in the writing world really appreciated that I knew my stuff and that I also cared a lot about the craft of writing. So, you know, look at Robin Cook, you know, still practicing ophthalmology, but, you know, a million bestsellers, Um, you know, it's, it's, um, people get torn. And for me, life made the decision, I, you know, but it doesn't always have to. You know, mm-hmm. many people keep doing both.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned life made the decision, and I think obviously you would have been fantastic in in either careers. But I think we're all the better for it. And I wanted to now speak uh, or talk to you about healthcare policy a little bit more. You know, uh, Paul Rayburn of the MIT Night Science Journalism Tracker he describes your award winning series "Paying Till It Hurts" as quote the clearest dissection to date of a health system's pricing ills. And I might add that your book, which I have on my shelf, An American Sickness, uh, does that incredibly well as well. So can you just highlight some of the biggest problems that you see right now with American healthcare? And and why do you think the cost of medical services in the U.S. is so much higher than in other developed countries?
2: Well, I think that the short answer is that it's because medicine in this country is primarily a business with healthcare on the back burner. And when I was practicing, it was primarily healthcare with business on the back burner. And that's flipped. And the way that book and that series came about was um somewhat amusing. I, I was uh covering international environment and um my the then top editors at the New York Times, who will not be named, Uh, dissolve the environment pod, because he said, oh, it's not, I'm not that interested in environmental coverage. And we'd really like you to come back to covering healthcare. And at that point, you noted, I, I had mostly been in covering environment in Europe for the last five years, and I'd experienced a lot of different health systems, but I'd been out of the U.S. for a decade. And when I came back, I was just shocked at how expensive everything had become. You know, I was just like my little albuterol inhaler, which I'd gotten for 10 bucks before, was suddenly like 90 and, you know, more expensive with insurance than it had been just over the counter before. And I remember like my kids augmented, you know, when it was a brand drug was cheap before we went away. And 10 years later, we came back and suddenly... It was over 200 dollars, even though it was generic. And I was like, "This is, this is crazy. What happened?" You know, I was like, "Oh my god!" And um, so, uh, when they said we'd like you to come back and cover the Affordable Care Act, I was like, uh, "I've been there, done that. Um, you have other people who can do that. I want to do a series about why is American healthcare so expensive? How?" And and so what we did, which I'm really proud of is I didn't want to look at... Because before that, there've been a lot of stories about, you know, the million-dollar cancer treatment. And people generally, when they read that, what you, after a time in journalism, you understand what kind of moves people. When they read a story about a million-dollar cancer treatment, they think, wow, that's outrageous. I hope they do, I don't get that kind of cancer you know, but not it could be me. And what I learned from covering the environment is you have to make people understand that this problem could be yours. You know, climate change is your problem, even if you live on the 15th floor on the Upper West Side, you know, sea level rises. So for a Pain Till It Hurts, we looked at the most ordinary procedures. You know, we looked at um, the one that hit me when I came back to the U.S. at 50 and needed my first screening colonoscopy, Right, which was billed at like $13,000. And my insurer, you know, on my behalf negotiated down to 9,000. And I knew it shouldn't cost anywhere near that. I was kind of blown away. And I know I should have been happy because at the bottom of the EOB, it said like, what you own now, zero. But I was mm-hmm. like, wait, what's wrong with this? So we started with colonoscopy, much to the um, distress of the the photo editor for the series. (laughs) How am I going to illustrate that? Um, And then we did just simple things so everyone could see this could be you, like getting stitches in an emergency room, you know, getting an echocardiogram, um, using an albuterol inhaler or, or taking colchicine. And when that series was done, I... I kind of understood like how things had gotten so expensive in the sense of, I understood that my colonoscopy was crazy expensive because there was the $6,000 facility fee from the hospital for, you know, an operating room set up that basically wasn't needed at all to do a colonoscopy, but that's where, that's how you make money is by, you know, the facility fee. But I didn't know, like, how on earth did we get this thing called a facility fee? Because when I was an ER doctor, I just got a salary and I came with the ER, as did the hospital. You know, there was it was just a flat charge. So that led me to think, oh, I want to research that more. And luckily, when you're a writer, when you want to understand something, if you can get a book publisher interested, you can get some money and time to do it. So that became... An American sickness—you uh, know how healthcare became big business, and how you can take it back. And I didn't set out to write a book on that exactly, but as I started doing the research, I realized what had happened is you know business consultants had come into healthcare, which were not unneeded at the time when I when I was you know in the ER. It was there was no sense of organization or efficiency or anything like that. But then they kind of took over and said things like, hey, why do you have this flat fee? You could bill for the doctor separately. You could bill for the IV bag separately. You could bill, you know, you have someone sitting in a recovery room. Why do you give that away? You could bill for that and you can bill in 15 minute increments. So, you know, you just saw business consultants come in and take over health care and, um, I, and I think a lot of what we do in healthcare now, sadly, is governed by uh, what generates revenue, not what's good for health. And you see things like, at Kaiser Health News, we recently did a, a story about a large swath of West Texas that has no OBGYN units, no no mm-hmm. obstet- no obstetrical units. You know, where where women are told oh, they're open on Tuesdays and Thursdays and otherwise you go to an emergency room and deliver there, you know, that's nuts. But that's because OB units are money losers. And that's also why, you know, every little hospital tends to run a cath lab and do joint replacements, even though probably every little hospital shouldn't be doing those things. That, you know, you want to go to a place that does that all the time. So in some ways, the revelation for me of the book was how much business governed the the way we do healthcare and the kind of healthcare we get. And the second one was that physicians had mostly been kind of passive as that happened. And so part of the book, the how you can take it back, was directed at patients and physicians and employers to say, it doesn't have to be this way, but you got to You got to make your voice heard. You know, physicians of my generation spent a lot of time grumbling as these things evolved, as suddenly their pay was tied to how many RVUs they they build for the hospital. And, you know, they were taught, oh, never for a level one or two visit. You know, every ER visit should be level four or five. And they grumbled a lot about it, but they didn't say to the hospital, no, this is wrong. I'm not going to do it. Um, You know, they felt powerless, but if hospitals don't have physicians, they don't have anyone bringing in patients. They don't have anyone doing the work. So, you know, I'm seeing in your generation of physicians, a much more vocal and activist approach. And it's really heartening to see.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing all of that. And I think There's so much fascinating there, but the origins of an American sickness is fascinating because when I was reading the book, I I was thinking to myself, I wonder how this came about. And so thank you for mentioning that. You also said something that's interesting that I think is important mentioning again, which is that when you saw your bill and it said, you know, what you owe now, it's zero. Most patients breathe a sigh of relief, but I think it's worth considering that you know, you and all of us are indirectly paying for it through higher premiums, or if it's CMS, it's through reallocation of tax dollars. It's just worth considering because I think a lot of folks, after seeing that zero, would be less upset.
2: Oh, sure. Uh, and when I go to get an X-ray and I see, you know, I ask how much it is because I'm kind of a wonk about this right. stuff now, and they say it's some ridiculous price, and I go like, "What?" They like, "Well, why do you care? You have good insurance." and I care because all of us pay for that, essentially, in premiums. And also, I think what made the book timely and made us at a tipping point is, you know, that was in 2007 where it said zero on my bill. Now there are higher deductibles, higher co-pays, higher co-insurance. It's very rare to get a bill that says zero for most Mm -hmm. people. Right. Um, So I think... We have a wonderful, and now I'm going to promote our, we do a series at Kaiser Health News with NPR and CBS this morning called Bill of the Month. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're hair raising, you know, and there are people who are good, hardworking Americans who try to do the right thing, who get stuck with often thousands, sometimes tens of thousands in medical bills, which they shouldn't be stuck with.
0: Yeah, no, I, I read Kaiser Health News very religiously, and so I am familiar with that. So you've outlined in a very sort of distilled, clear way your reflections on how the role of businesses change in American healthcare. So let's talk about what you exactly think the role should be, because one of our, you could argue at its best, innovations fueled by small and large businesses can drive life-saving treatments, and and one of our previous. Guest who's a doc and a VC partner at Flare Capital, Dr. Dan Gabriel Medin, he quoted uh, as saying, Margin funds the business. Um, So, what do you think is the appropriate role of America's so called business machine in the healthcare world? And and how should we think about sort of the trade offs of private and public run healthcare?
2: Yeah, you know, in my current job, I get, um, um, you know, many emails about, you know, a new app or a new innovation that is going to save healthcare. And I am, you know, I'm not opposed to business or venture capital. I don't think it's a great idea that private equity is running nursing homes, to be clear. You know, I think there, if you think of it as a Venn diagram where one is healthcare and the other is finance, there is an intersection. And I think we should focus. I I tell all the business people I talk to, let's focus on that intersection rather than on stuff that. Yeah, it's going to sound cool and you'll find someone to fund the startup, but it really won't make patients' lives any better. And, you know, the kind of profit, like I'm not opposed to people making a profit, but the kind of profits we're seeing now from some insurers or pharmaceutical firms or device makers, I think are a little bit obscene, frankly, given the hardship that they create for patients who can't afford them. And, you know, when you look at other countries, we're just paying, you know, often three to 10 times as much. And, um, you know, is is profit the only thing that drives innovation? I hope not. Like, you know, a Nobel Prize used to be a pretty good thing. And, um, you know, and a certain degree of profit, I think, is justified. But we're now in a world where you know, we just did a, a, a series um, at KHN about um, you know how spine surgeons are doing these little tweaks to devices, getting them patented, and implanting them, and making a whole lot of money from royalties. You know, they're not really inventing something new. I mean, I'm all, you invent something fabulous. You know, the first MRI, go for it, make make, make a ton of money. But, you know, now MRIs, yeah, there's always new generations, but the improvements, as with many drugs, are iterative, not really novel. So why do we act as if they deserve, you know, huge amounts of compensation? You know, and when I think about something like drug prices in the U.S., you know, when I was a practicing ER doc. The first few years were really hard because there were um, patients with AIDS who came in and were dead within w- weeks, if not months. You know, they you could treat some of the infections, but not very effectively. Um, I believe it was in 1992, the first um, antiretroviral AZT came on the market and it was a game changer, right? Like it just revolutionized HIV care. Um, It was priced at $10,000 a year or $750 a month. And there were editorials everywhere saying, no one should charge that much for a drug. I mean, now we don't blink at drugs that cost $10,000 a year. So how much profit do you need to, to drive innovation? I think it's gotten to crazy levels. And I think a lot of what's funded now You know, like I said, a lot of things that VC will fund are not very useful for patients, even though they sound cool and people will buy them. So, you know, focus your attention on that place that's both really useful and will make money. And I think I will be a much happier person. And I will get far fewer emails (laughs) about dumb apps that are going to like, you know, do things that patients don't need done, but patients don't know they don't really need that done.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. And I think we're all in agreement here that anchoring around patient benefit is sort of the primary thing that should be on people's minds, uh, regardless of whether you're in the clinical healthcare world or in VC, PE, growth equity, whatever it is. I'm going to pass it along to Alex, who has a few more questions.
2: Okay. Hi, Alex.
1: Hi, Elizabeth. And thank you, Shad. Thank you, Elizabeth. Great discussion. And uh, Elizabeth, I really enjoyed the the point that you've mentioned around basically uh, when healthcare kind of uh, took the back seat and business took the front seat. Uh, Physicians were passive and were not basically kind of leading the the revolution or leading the change. And I think this is something that uh, we hope to change through this podcast by having (laughs) amazing guests like you. So, again, thank you so much for joining us.
2: that it's an uphill climb now because my generation kind of bailed on that. So
1: we'll see about that. (laughs) Uh, But Elizabeth, you've had an amazing career. You've transitioned between uh, clinical medicine to journalism, and you've been able to achieve immense impact through your writing, through thought leadership. Many of the docs that we've interviewed before, they've mentioned that what drove their decision to go into investing, entrepreneurship, or, or consulting is the ability to make impact on millions of patients rather than in individual patients through business. But surely that is not the only way to make an impact, as you've demonstrated through your career. So. I'm really keen to know your thoughts on how can physicians make really large impact on the healthcare system and on the lives of patients outside the traditional remits of business.
2: Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I did have that feeling when I left medicine that working in an emergency room, I could sew up one person's cut. I could, you know, deal with I worked the New York City Marathon a number of years with, you know, uninsured marathon runners who would come in with injuries. But um, I realized at some point that I could have a greater impact writing. I thought, I hoped, you know, it it was scary because I was leaving something that was felt pretty secure to something that, like, I'm not sure if this is going to work out for me or not. You know, at one point, my my husband said, I should – I thought I married someone, maybe I should have married a dermatologist or something. I married the one doctor who doesn't make money. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, there was, um, it it kind of depends what drives you, right? Um, And, uh, you know, when I first started as a journalist, I made, even when doctors, ER doctors were not very well paid, I made, um, you know, five times as much for um 3 ER shifts as I did for you know a 3 day week contract at the New York Times. So, you know, there are the financial realities that for would I've left medicine earlier if I could afford to? Probably not. You know, I enjoyed working in the ER. So, I think that makes the decision hard for people, but the lucky thing is there are many parts of medicine where you can practice and Have an impact on policy. You can get involved in your hospital's politics. You can get involved. You know, most healthcare is very local. So you know, I know you. You know, sometimes people run for senate, but you can also run for things in your town and really affect how healthcare works in your county or in your city. So I'm I'm encouraged to see a lot of young physicians either going the political route or just showing up at those meetings to make their voice heard rather than, you know, grumbling that they don't like how things are. Um, I think it's sad right now that so many physicians tell me of my, around my generation, leave the profession because they feel disillusioned and burned out because, you know, they have lost control in a way that is sad to them because many of them you know, 30 years ago thought they were going to go into independent practice and run their own ship and be in control of their lives. And that's really hard these days, you know, because you don't have much negotiating power against insurers that way. So I do think there are many ways to have a bigger impact. And medicine is is pretty great in that Unlike, you know, working as a bank teller, you don't have to work five days a week necessarily. Uh, you know, I know plenty of physicians who have managed a four-day week and do what they, you know, and and pursue an, a different passion on the other day. So, um, or most often since they're hard workers, they, on the other three days, they pursue their different passion. But I, I think it's, you know. If I could have done both still and raised two kids, uh, you know, and, and, you know, not have to go back and do ER board stuff, maybe I would have been happier doing that. But that's not how life worked out.
1: Elizabeth, this is fascinating insight and especially around the the perspective of a portfolio career. And we're seeing more and more physicians approaching really cl- clinical practice, as you mentioned, from a portfolio career perspective, whether mixing it with writing or with advocacy, policy work, or, or even venture capital. I guess shifting gears to the role of digital transformation in healthcare, I'm, I'm doing a PhD in, in computer science, so I'm doing a lot of interesting stuff with AI in healthcare and really being exposed to the forefront of innovation there. I remember reading one of your Twitter posts recently, basically, uh, around this uh, this very interesting project to use sensors for sewage water for detection yeah. of COVID-19 in the community. I've read your writing on telemedicine, and I'm really curious to know your thoughts on how you're looking at the digital transformation that's happening in the healthcare system now. What are the challenges there to make this digital transformation a force for good because we can make it a force for good we can make it address the inequality that we have today but surely we sh- we need to take the right actions to make that happen so right what's, what's and this, this
2: exactly gets into the issue of are we doing it because it will make money or because it's good for healthcare and i see a lot of you know digital innovation is really cool now and You know, Lord knows the the healthcare system needs to be disrupted. You know, now I had a cardiologist, somewhat amusingly, tell me that he said to his hospital CEO, you know, home monitoring has gotten so good that I can manage my patients with heart failure at home. And the CEO was like, don't do that. You know, we just built this, you know, this beautiful 700 bed new hospital with all telemetry beds. So I think you know the digital kind of revolution is very threatening to the the model of healthcare we have now, as well as offering huge advantages. But it really needs to be the physicians, I think, who drive how technology is used, because you know digital mental health. Meh, I'm not convinced that you know it, it is. It has a place, but you know, I see Michael Phelps on TV, uh, you know, advertising Talkspace. I bet when Michael Phelps needed therapy, he didn't go to Talkspace. He went to an actual um, psychiatrist, right? So I worry that digital health can become, uh, if investors are the ones doing the work, just the kind of high profit, low cost way of doing healthcare for the disadvantaged, you know, if you have the money, you'll go see a real doctor. But if you don't, you'll, you'll, you know, get the, the robo doc, uh, you know, and we already deal with enough robo calls. I mean, uh, you know, I had um, a, a pretty nasty head injury a year and a half ago. And uh, I, you know, calling a hospital, being transferred around 17 times and never speaking to a person like, is that what medicine is going to be like? I hope not. But, you know, if it's to do home monitoring, that's great. Um, if it's to do, I had a because this was in the period of the COVID, right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I had months of um, home physical therapy, which was pretty good. It wasn't as good. You know, I it, it clearly would have been better as a hybrid approach because when I finally got to see a physical therapist in person... She said, oh, you're doing that all wrong, you know, but in two dimensions, she couldn't see that. And I had all, you know, I got great care. It was at Hopkins. I had home monitors that could see my movement in 3D, like a kind of Wii-like machine. It was very high tech, and I'm sure someone's selling that now. But, um, you know, there are parts of medicine that just have to be done in person. So it's a question of whether telemedicine and digital medicine will be used to augment and improve what we get or will it be used to um, just to make money and uh, to you know I'm very amused because we're doing some in our bill of the month project um, that hospitals when they do telemedicine visits are charging facility fees I'm like you're sitting in your your home, you know, what's where's the facility? There ain't no facility. So, you know, that's the kind of nonsense that gets me kind of alarmed. But used properly, it will be transformative. And, you know, and whenever I go speak at hospitals and they all want to show me their brand new, beautiful building to replace the brand new, beautiful building they built, you know, six years before, I always say, You know, I don't always say it, but a lot of me is thinking, well, I hope you have plans to turn this into condos because this is not medicine of the future. You know, these rooms are not going to be needed, but, you know, but investors love it and hospitals, you know, I, I kind of had left in our earlier discussion, had let them off the hook, you know, the not, not for profit status of hospitals that are constantly building, uh, you know, paying CEOs five over five million dollars a year—they don't look like Mother Teresa, put it that way. You know, and I think that they are businesses just as much as any other business. Not all of them, but some of them. And I can, you know, I would recommend that people read. We did a a, a, K, a Kaiser Health News article about um, hospitals, who, of course during pandemic, went to uh, Congress and said, we're bleeding money. You know, we don't have enough. They got a lot of CARES Act money. Um, Some actually did lose money. Many made a lot of money and didn't give the CARES Act money back. So shame on them, you know.
1: Elizabeth, I completely agree. And I think going back maybe to an American sickness and the the idea of overcharging for for healthcare services in the U.S. is something that really struck me initially when I did a part of my clinical train in World Cornell Medicine. But oh, basically, yeah. I, I did medicine back in Syria. So before the conflict, all the people from the surrounding regions used to come to Syria to fix their teeth and do many right. medical procedures because it was tenths of the cost at the same quality.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: and so when I've seen the costs in the U.S., the first time, it was a major shock, and uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you on that. Uh, but I guess just one point, which is we always need a financial incentives to to encourage innovation, right? So, for example, biotechs around the world eye the U.S. market for their products Because basically, they know that they can get financially reimbursed in the U.S. market. And this spurs innovation in the biotech space. This allows more people to create new drugs. Um, This allows people to create drugs for rare diseases, for which the market is small. Also, China is working very heavily on building up their biotech sector. And one of the key approaches in their strategy is actually building a market for new therapeutics so that they can encourage more companies to take the risk of translating innovations from labs to to the clinic because they know that there is a market for what they are building. So how can we balance this force for good of healthcare as a business with the extremely damaging impacts that it can have when it's uncontrolled and it leads to inflation of prices?
2: Well, I think, you know, one thing I'm always interested in how Some other countries that are not, you know, national health systems like Germany, they will allow things to come in at a high price. But as they age, they have to, the price has to go down as as any, you know, know, an old Tesla costs less than a new Tesla. So um, and and I think also, you know, a lot of me too drugs cost as much as the actual innovator drugs. So I think we really need to figure out an incentive system for true innovation and, you know, use patent law to say, is this really a novel, something novel? And then say, you know, the price of an MRI in this country has gone up, not down. That's old technology now. There is no reason for that, except that it can, right? That People don't feel that price pressure. And a lot of people believe in transparency in terms of pricing. I don't know. You know, I think that's good. I think that's a first step. But I don't think, you know, you can't expect someone who's, you know, to price shop when they're brought into an emergency room. So I I do think you need, you know, but it's why uh, pharmaceutical firms frequently they want to launch in the U.S. first because they know they'll set a price point that's really high, and then they can go negotiate with, you know, all the European com- countries that do negotiate and say, "Well, in the U.S., we're getting you know eighty-six thousand dollars," and so it, it's a business strategy, not a um, not a rational incentive strategy. And I think the problem in, that we're going to have now is if you want to say you want to do, which many many countries do, you know, cost benefit analysis, what should we charge? You know, the problem is in the US, the costs of care are so high that you can charge an awful lot of, for drugs to avoid an insane amount of money for care. So, you know, for example, when um, Gilead came out with the first Hep C drug and it was $86,000 initially, um, and they're saying, okay, that's fair because a, a liver transplant costs a million dollars, right? Well, that's a nice comparison, but most people with hepatitis C don't need a liver transplant, so that's a kind of bogus thing to say. And um, and most and many people with hepatitis C don't even know they have hepatitis C. So now they're on this, you know, now they're beating the bushes to get everyone over a certain age tested and treated. And many of those people would never have had deleterious effects from hepatitis C. So those comparisons get very weird very quickly. And, you know, if you'd use that to price AZT, you know, you could have priced it at 200, I don't know, any amount of money as you do for some of the new, uh, you know, infused drugs for rare diseases. So I think there has to be some kind of rationalization of of profit and, uh, you know, and and really a revision of the patent system to say, you know, because many of these medicines which, you know, I wrote, I think one of the first chapters of An American Sickness is about this guy, Jeffrey Kivy, who got Remicade, you know, Remicade. Those drugs were amazing and life-changing for people with psoriatic arthritis and certain conditions. But now they're 30 years old and they're still being charged you know, at crazy prices and hospitals don't mind because some of them charge. I mean, what prompted him to write to me um, was one of them was billing $110,000 for each six you know every six week infusion and he couldn't do without that drug. You know, he would have been back on crutches. But um, you know, it was kind of insane. Um and he knew it. And he was a New York City teacher. So the bottom of his bill still said, you know, what you owe zero. But I, I paid ta- you know, at the time I was paying taxes in New York. That's you know, those are my tax dollars at, you know, bad work. <laughs> so
1: uh, Elizabeth, thank you for sharing this perspective, and it's really interesting to look how interconnected the different parts of the system are. Like how basically very high level of very high cost of healthcare services can justify the high cost of or the high price tag of medicines. And I think w- just building on the example that you've mentioned from Gilead, in, in, in these circumstances, we also end up with the healthcare system and and the U.S. subsidizing the cost of drugs for the world because basically. Um, pharma companies can charge these high premiums in the US, but they, they cannot charge in other parts of the world. And I think-
2: Yeah, I, but I don't think Gilead is losing money in Germany or- or. I, I or don't think that they. as well. <laughs> I, I think they're just, their profit margin is, is less um, abundant uh, than it is here. So I think they're, you know, I, I don't know how to do it. I wouldn't want to say this is I mean, it makes more sense to me to stop the repatenting nonsense and stop the me too nonsense and stop the, uh, you know, just patenting. And and it also, I mean, I think we have tools to address this through patent law. We also have tools to address the hospital pricing through the uh, restraint of trade restrictions and, you know, address consolidation, which, of course, is. Has, has allowed for kind of near monopolies in many cities and, you know, among, you know, oligopolies of, among joint makers so that, you know, there isn't, gen, you know, we like to say that it's a market, but there's, there really is very little genuine competition in our market. So it's not a functioning market.
1: I definitely agree. And I think I remember one interesting project that I read about. It's called Healthy Kings Inc Tal, which is basically a healthcare management company in Germany that had specific budget to uh, cover the costs of healthcare services for a specific population. And instead of spending the, this budget on uh, reactive care, they started spending higher amounts on preventative care. And after five years, they've noticed that they actually saved a part of that budget, and they've improved healthcare outcomes. So I definitely agree from that perspective. And I think maybe shifting gears to the last question, I was recently attending a session with uh, Peter Orzag, who's a Marshall Scholar. He is currently the CEO of Financial Advisory at Lazard, where I'm working over the summer. Peter had multiple uh, careers uh, yeah. b- before joining Lazard, and he mentioned that when he did these career um changes, he always went for careers where his experiences and skills were a unique differentiator and an added advantage. So for Mm -hmm. the medical doctors who are considering to venture off the beaten path, what would be your recommendations to them in terms of how they can think about this? And when they go to a new career direction, surely there is a delta in terms of the skills and expertise compared to someone who has been doing that job for a couple of years. So what would be the best ways for them to maximize the speed of their learning? Um, yeah, no, to I fill think that's, gap?
2: that's a good question. And I think, you know, I went into journalism to cover healthcare because that's what I knew. Um, so you are, you know, I often joke that, um, you know, because my first real job in journalism was at the New York Times, I'd done tons of writing before, but I, I joked that, you know, being in the science department at the New York Times was like my five years at the Jersey Journal, you know, where I learned the parts of journalism that I had no idea about. I mean, the first, I remember the first big story I wrote, it was about bone marrow transplants and it was about you know, it was all the science. I was, it was in science times for a while. And then I quickly moved to Metro to do more health policy stuff, which was more my interest. And I wrote a long article about bone marrow transplants and my editor read it and said, you didn't speak to any patients. And I was like, you know, of course, you know, that's what you need for journal to get us to make a story come alive. So I do think, you know, like everything you, you start with what, you know, it's an entree into another profession. Um, now, you know, um, I still find having the knowledge of medicine as our newsroom is covering COVID allows me to kind of say this, you know, this thing you're being told doesn't make sense, you know, that we should look into this more. So it's, it's still valuable. And you know, I would never say to a healthcare journalist, oh, you have to go to medical school to be a healthcare journalist. A lot of people, you know, learn about health and medicine. But the thing is, it's a real leg up when you want to do writing because for most journalists, and it's why I did both health and environment, science stuff is like mystifying. They're like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't understand it. It's complicated. I don't I don't want to deal with it. So, um it is a huge advantage to have that background, um, but you have to realize who you're writing for, and it's not other doctors. It may be policymakers. In my case, it's people, voters. Um, so you really, you know, it it does take a kind of shift of perspective because knowledge alone you have the knowledge, but you have to learn to translate that into, um, into, you know, whatever goals you're trying to achieve. So.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. And I guess moving to the last question, what would be the best way for our audience to learn more about the work that you do and follow basically your latest projects and the impact that you are oh, making?
2: Well, you know, um, You can always go to khn.org, which is our our website, and everything is free um, to read. We have no paywalls, no advertising. I I do write, you know, because I do love writing. I genuinely like, you know, and, and that's the other thing. You have to enjoy it. For me, it was always like a relaxing thing to do. So something fun. It was a way to get things out that I felt like I wanted to say. So, I still do write, you know essays and op-eds for The Times, the Post. Anyone who will I'm still, you know, if the Times says they don't want something. it's not in their wheelhouse. I'm like, that's fine. i'll I'll go some take it someplace else. So it's it's as much of a release for me as as it is to get this I think I want said by someone out there. So all places take pitches. If someone is interested in exploring writing, Um, and you can certainly send them to us and, uh, you know, there, you know, everyone has a first story, you know, and, and the important thing is to write and, you know, the first story makes the second story easier and on and on and on. And, uh,
1: thank you, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed the conversation and it's been a great pleasure to have you with us. So thank you very much for joining our podcast.
2: Uh, Thank you, Elizabeth. Good luck to both of you and to all physicians who uh, are looking a little outside of medicine because you can often impact medicine and how that medical world works a little more from the outside than when you're in the office. so and 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 our system needs that at the moment. So good luck.
0: That was such a fascinating conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. I have so many takeaways, but I think, The main takeaway I have is just her immense level of curiosity. Uh, It's fascinating that because she was always interested in writing, she took a year off from medical school, probably back when not a lot of people were taking years off from medical school, to go work and write for what she called was a no-name science journal. And then she graduated, she came back, she graduated from medical school, went to residency, and again, she followed what she was truly interested in, uh, which was writing. And what I found most interesting is that she didn't always do healthcare writing. She actually ventured into writing about the environment. And she did stints in Rome and Beijing before she came back to the U.S. to to cover healthcare. So she just oozed curiosity. And for her, curiosity was almost like a powerful drug. And so I encourage uh, our followers and our listeners to tap into that curiosity wherever it, it takes you. Over to you, Alex.
1: That's a fascinating takeaway, Shad, and I I guess my takeaway was around something she's mentioned, how the conversation uh, that Elizabeth had with her clinical mentors and with her family, who were doctors, were not easy when she was contemplating venturing off the beaten path, and I think this reminds me of a phrase that I frequently hear from medics who uh, went outside traditional uh, clinical career path, which is the hardest conversations that they've ever had. The hardest professional conversations that they've ever had were with their clinical mentors when they were saying that they want to walk outside the traditional path. And I think there is something to to be spoken there that we should recognize that these conversations are very difficult and it's fine for these conversations to be difficult. And I think one important insight is not to let the difficulty of these conversations actually dissuade someone from pursuing their passion, because people are going to recommend to you what they think is right, but only you know what is the thing that you're passionate about and what you want to spend your life doing. So have these different conversations, difficult conversations and go after what you what you're passionate about, because that's the most important thing. And to our audience out there, join us next episode in which we would have some super interesting stories of medical doctors who've decided to venture outside the traditional path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com.